passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. How many of you guys know what a trophy of war is? Not a trick question. It's really a simple answer. It's when two um, armies go to war, and the victor, he goes and takes some of the loser's stuff, and he brings it home, and that's his souvenir. It's uh, something he remembers the war by. Now, trophies of war, because there's a lot of emotion attached to them, and because they're a part of history, can be highly valuable. And even though they're really nothing more than old junk, you can get a lot of money for that kind of stuff. So I thought I'd show you some trophies of war. Like here, for instance, is a postcard. Just a postcard. But this is a postcard from World War II. It was written to Heinrich Himmler. Does that name ring a bell to any of you? Yeah, the author of the Holocaust. You can buy this online. How much do you think it goes for? But make, call something out, 50 bucks, 7 million, not, uh, that's a little high. Yeah, because you already read it from first service. There you go, $479 available online. Don't give the answer away, Brett, for, this, for the next one, okay? How about this? This is an SS patch, it's Hitler's SS Stroops, legitimately worn by one of them. How much do you think this little patch of cloth is going for online right now? 200 bucks, you think? 200,000, that's a little high, but I will tell you, it goes for this amount. $729. Now, how about a hat? Just a simple everyday hat. How about this one? Oh, don't give it away. <laughs> Somebody's double tapping it too fast on the finger there. Well, that was what I, that's what really caught my attention. Uh, when an SS troopers had, it's a tropical edition, so it cost $4,759 online. Now, the point of this is that war trophies are highly valuable. People will give a lot of money for them. This morning, we're gonna look at a trophy of war. A trophy of war that at first, the winning side was thrilled to have, but once they got it home, they completely changed their mind. In fact, they would have to do anything they could to get rid of it. What is that trophy of war? Stick with me and you'll find out. What we know is that we've been looking at the book of Samuel. We're starting our way through the book of Samuel. And last week we were in 1 Samuel chapter 4. You remember what happened. The Philistines were invading Israel. Uh, there was the battle of Ebenezer. And at the first go-around, um, the Israelites lost 4,000 men, so they decided they'd go to Shiloh, grab the Ark of the Covenant, have the Ark of the Covenant brought down to battle, and they thought it would function like a lucky rabbit's foot. I mean, how can you lose when you have the Ark on your side? Didn't work well. well. They lost miserably, because God refuses to be used like a lucky rabbit's foot. They lost 30,000 people, and the Ark was captured, and it was brought home to the Philistines. And that's what we're going to look at today. And we're going to begin in 1 Samuel chapter 5. And we're going to look what happened when the Philistines brought the Ark of the Covenant home as their prized war trophy. Now, incidentally, we're going to do something that I normally don't do. 
we're going to try to go not just through 1 Samuel chapter 5, but we're also going to cover 1 Samuel chapter 6. Now, if you know me, that is a lot of text to cover. And some of you guys are sort of laughing already, I know. But trust me, we'll get through it. I did it first service. We landed on time. But I think you'll have a lot of fun because there's a lot of intentional humor that 1 Samuel puts in along the way. By the way, we're not going to pre-read the text because of the length of the text. We're just going to dive right in, teach, illustrate, apply, and explain. So let's go ahead and begin. It begins with what is the double defeat of Dagon. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Go ahead and put that map up there. We used this map last week. Uh, Aphek and Ebenezer up there in the red, that's where the battle took place. Remember, they brought the ark from Shiloh, which is 20 miles to the east. But after the defeat, they brought the ark down to Ashdod, which is in the center of Philistine territory. It's approximately 30 miles southwest. The story continues. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. You're like, Dagon? I've heard of Dragon but I don't know who Dagon is. Dagon is the chief of the Philistine gods. He's also known as sort of the fish god or the fish man. He sort of looks like a fishy face kind of guy. The idea was they thought he was associated with fertility. He thought he was associated with vegetation. So you wanted to have good crops. You wanted to have good animals. What you did is you made offerings to Dagon, the fishy face guy, so that things would go well for you. They decided that they'd bring the ark right into his temple. Now, in their mind, this didn't just mean that the Philistine army was better than the Israelite army. This meant the reason they won as the Philistine god was more powerful and better than the Israelite god. So the ark was the trophy of war. They brought into Dagon's temple, and they thought things would go really well. You can almost see it here. There's almost like a, a big ego they have. They take, they brought. We've already seen in chapter four that they remembered that the gods of Israel had defeated Egypt and the gods of Egypt. But now their God, Dagon, he had defeated the God of Israel. So he's really big. He's powerful. He's supreme. And they've got a big ego. But it won't last for long. All we need to do is go to the next verse. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Well, things happened overnight. Something happened. We don't know what happened. But this big statue of Dagon went face first in the dirt in front of the ark. Doesn't seem like much significance going on here until you look at the cultural background. In that day when two um, armies battled and the losing army, or the, the losing king, he would come before the winning king and the way he surrendered and showed defeat is he got down on his face and put his face in the dirt in front of the victorious king. What position is Dagon in in front of the ark? The exact same position. Sort of announcing, guess who's actually in charge? 
And guess who's actually the loser? But, of course, they wouldn't necessarily listen to that. And, then, and the, by the way, the author of 1 Samuel sort of emphasizes this at the very end. See how helpless Dagon is? He couldn't even get up off the ground. In fact, his worshipers had to pick him up and put him back in his place. He continues. And when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Same thing. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Next day, same thing happens again, but here is where it's a little bit different. He's face first in front of the ark, but his head is cut off and his hands are cut off. It's not broken off. They were cut off. And they didn't just get cut off and stay where they were. They were cut off, picked up, and brought over to the threshold of the main door of the entrance to the to the, te the temple. So they were put there right in the doorway. Is there any cultural background going on here? There is. In that day, after um, you were defeated, sometimes what kings would do after they defeated an enemy, to further humiliate those people, they would cut off their hands and their head, rendering them actually powerless and senseless. The same thing happened to Dagon. His head was cut off. His hands were cut off. He is powerless before the mighty God of Israel. Now, the people who worship Dagon should have begun to pick up these clues rather quickly. But of course they don't. They don't at all. Look what it says. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. In other words, instead of beginning to repent and think maybe our God isn't so good after all, what they did is took the threshold where they found his head and hands and they made it into a holy place, a, a, a sacred place. They completely went in the wrong direction. And by the way, this gives us a little point of application to give you. I put it in your outlines. Sometimes when people see evidence of God, they will stubbornly refuse to repent and believe in God. Isn't that true? They'll see the evidence, but they'll stubbornly repent to refuse and believe. Isn't this something that we uh, see not just with Dagon's priests, but look at Jesus in the New Testament. Heals the sick, raises the dead, feeds thousands, and yet what do the leaders of the temple think of Jesus? He's a fake. He's a fraud. <laughs> He's, the, he's the, a son of Beelzebub, a son of Satan. He has to be gotten rid of. He has to be crucified. They see the evidence of who Jesus is, yet they refuse to believe it and repent with it. And I think here's where some practical application comes out for you and me. Folks, there'll be some people that you will meet, and you'll be able to tell them about how Jesus changed your life. They may have known you before Jesus, and they know you after Jesus. They've seen the amazing changes that Jesus has made. And you can tell them about that again and again, but they will stubbornly and hard-heartedly refuse to believe. When that happens, 
I mean, don't be surprised by it. Simply expect it. Not that everyone will be that way, but certainly some people will be that way, just like the priests of Dagon. As we continue, it moves from God beating up Dagon in his own temple to what's going on with the people themselves. But God's, God's heavy hand on the Philistines. And the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. Begins with this phrase, the hand of God was heavy on the people of Ashdod. This word heavy is the same word we saw last week to use to describe Eli's weight. So what is God beginning to do to these people? Let's just give them a little bit of pressure. Let's just lean on them a little bit. And we're going to see as we go through this, God like gives a little pressure, and then over time he starts giving more pressure, and he's like continually starts putting more and more weight on them. There's a couple things he does here. It says he afflicts them with psychological as well as physical torments. It begins by saying he terrified them. This is literally saying that he afflicted them psychologically, filled them with anxiety, worry, fear. And I just noticed that I was studying this week because I always think God maybe afflicts these people with just physical maladies. That's not true. Abundant evidence as I studied this week that God in his judgment on sin can, can also afflict people with psychological sickness. It says here, he also afflicts them with tumors. Now here we can have some fun. I told you it was going to be humor today, so here we go. Now we know what a tumor is. Uh, a tumor is a growth, no big deal. The Hebrew word used here for tumor could be understood in a generic sense as a growth, but the Masoretic scribes who kept the Hebrew text, the one that actually our Bible is based upon, they had some commentaries on text as to what they mean. The Masoretic scribes felt this was not a generic word for tumor, but a specific word for a kind of tumor called a, not really a tumor, they thought it was hemorrhoids. That God literally afflicted them in their backside, painfully, irritably, like they can't even sit down. Now, it's in the text. I mean, you just have to read the Bible. These things are fun. Now, um, I thought about this for a while. I thought, okay, we have God afflicting people here with terror psychologically, physically with tumors or hemorrhoids. Is this really true that there's sometimes God in judgment of sin afflicts people psychologically and physically? And then I started looking around the Old Testament and I ran across this, which was interesting. I, actually, I didn't run across it by Thursday, which is when I have to have your outlines done. I ran across this over the weekend, so I don't have it in your outlines. I have it up here for you. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's blessings and curses, depending on if you obey or disobey God's commands. Look what one of the curses is if you disobey his commands. The Lord will strike you with boils of Egypt, with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. And then it continues. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. Do you see the physical as well as the psychological going on here? So we have possibly these guys engaged with a terrible case of hemorrhoids 
as well as psychological paranoia. By the way, some of the modern scholars don't follow the Masorites in believing this is hemorrhoids. Some modern scholars believe this is probably a case of the bubonic plague. If you remember that, it's called the Black Death, killed about two-thirds of Europe. I think it's about, my memory serves me correctly, about 24 million people. And the reason they say that is when you have the bubonic plague, your lymph nodes swell up and they actually burst with pus, so it looks like tumors under your skin. But was it the bubonic plague? Was it hemorrhoids? Quite honestly, I don't know if it w which one it was. Or maybe it was neither. But I do know this. God's hand was very heavy on these people. They were getting the message that maybe they shouldn't have taken the ark. It says, when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. We have to get rid of the ark. It's beating us up and it's beating up our God. Sort of humor in here. Like maybe he's a bad God to go with in the first place if he keeps getting beat up. Like in his own temple, his head getting cut off. Continues. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. Let me just understand or communicate to you how the Philistines government worked. You saw there was those five main cities. Each one of those cities had a lord in it, which you may be going to think is the king. But the Philistine cities all worked in an alliance. So these kings would, or lords would get together and make decisions and then agree by what they decided upon. Sort of like NATO works a little bit. Well, I don't know what exactly happened. Maybe the Lord of Gath was the last one to the meeting and he was late. Uh, maybe there, it was like the Survivor television show where there's an alliance behind the scenes where three of them all decided they vote for Gath. Somehow... This guy lost. Your turn to get the ark. I don't think he was really too thrilled about that, but he was outvoted. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So it doesn't matter if you're old or you're young, you've got the bad case of hemorrhoids. But also notice he said here, afflicted them with very great panic. It's the idea about psychological warfare once again. Now, it didn't take long until the people of Gath were saying the same thing as the people of Ashdod. We better get rid of the ark. And this is what we have. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. Let's go ahead and put that map up. I skipped a slide in there, but you can see where they moved it to Ashdod to Gath. The guys in Gath said, we're taking it north. You're gonna move it up to Ekron, which is just a little bit up the way. 
And as soon as the people of Ekron hear that the ark is coming into their town, they're like, oh, no, you're not. Don't you bring that thing in here. We don't want anything to do with it. But notice what they say is happening at this point. The ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. Well, at first, it was just physically the tumors that they were having. Now people are literally dying because of the presence of the ark. Remember I told you God is consistently ratcheting up the pressure through this whole thing? Then verse 11. And they sent therefore and gathered together all of the lords of the Philistines and said, send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly panic there's the psychological side, throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. Now usually when they gather the lords of the Philistines, it's so they can make a good decision for the people to follow. At this point, they're not asking the lords of the Philistines what they should do. They're telling the lords of the Philistines what they have to do. Get rid of the ark because it is killing us. It is killing our people. Give it back. And notice what it says here at the end. By the time the ark comes to Akron, God's hand was not heavy. It was very heavy. He's ratcheting up the pressure over time, stepping up the attacks. And then you get here to verse 12. The men who did not die were struck with tumors. And the cry of the city went up to heaven. Like before, you were upset if you ended up with the tumors. Now you're thankful if you have the tumors. Because everybody else who doesn't have the tumors is dying. That's even worse than having tumors. And the cry of the city is going up to heaven. It's like really, really lots of torture here. Let's pause and make some applications. It began with, hey, we've beat the God of Israel. He's not a big deal. Dagon's the real power. Now all of a sudden we're finding out it's not that way at all. Dagon is helpless. The people are being tormented. There is only one true God in the universe, folks. That's the God that we worship. That's the God of this Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. Do not buy into that lie of our culture that says Jesus is just one of the ways to be made right with God. Absolutely not. Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. There is only one true God in the universe and we worship him, we know him. Don't collapse to the cultural pleasure that tells you otherwise. Second thing I would like you to notice It's how God performs the rescue. You notice he allows his own ark to be captured. He allows it to be taken behind enemy lines. He allows it to be put in front of Dagon, the false god. It seems like when all hope is lost and when things are completely gone, that's when God begins to work the rescue of his ark. But isn't that the way that God seems to always work? Wasn't that the way when God rescued his people out of Egypt? 
it was the exact same kind of situation. They were forced to be making bricks without straw at that point. They were forced to be throwing their male children in the Nile River so they would be facing genocide. It is at the times of the greatest darkness that God seems to step in with his greatest light and rescue. How about Jesus? It was after Jesus had been whipped, after he'd been crucified, after he was dead, after he was buried, when it seems like all hope was God gone, that Jesus, God resurrected Jesus back to life. Think about Abraham. Abraham and Sarah tried forever to have children, but it was after they were super old, well past the years of childbearing, that God came to the rescue. But that's the way that God seems to work again and again in the Bible. Don't you think that may be the way that God's going to work again and again in your life? What I mean is you need to understand there's going to be times where your world is going to fall apart. There's going to be times when it seems like all hope is gone. There's going to be times where you can see nothing but the black darkness at the end of the tunnel. But it's when you're in those times of darkness that God likes to perform his best rescue moments. That's the way God works. My friends, be encouraged by that. Remember that. Do not lose hope when it seems like all hope is gone. Those are God's finest hours. Let's jump back into the text. If 1 Samuel chapter 5 is the story of what happened when the ark was taken behind enemy lines as a war trophy that everyone was at first thrilled to have, but it didn't take long until they wanted to get rid of it, 1 Samuel chapter 6 is the story of how the ark finally came home. The return of the ark. It says, The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. The purpose of that is to tell you how stubborn these Philistines were, how unwilling they were to get rid of this prize war trophy. I mean, how long did they have the ark until God started cranking on them with the pressure? Do you remember? When was Dagon knocked over? The very next day. So he's been cranking up the pressure for a while. But these guys do not want to get rid of the ark. Finally, they're at the point where like, we give up, we're sending the ark home, we have to get rid of it. But this is a God thing, so we need some God help. And that's what we find in verse 2. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place. You're the religious guys around here in, Philist in the land of the Philistines. Tell us how do we send this thing back? I mean, if we dump it in the mountains, somehow I don't think the God of Israel is going to be real happy with that. We have to figure out the right, right way to send it back and make God happy. And this is what they say in verse 3. They said, if you send the ark of God, of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. In other words, you're going to have to give back an offering with the ark, admitting that you're guilty of taking the ark and you did the wrong thing. 
Now, let me just pause in our uh, progress through this text and just make a few comments that's pretty interesting here. What you begin to see as we look through these, these chapter is the freeing of the ark from the Philistines is very similar to the freeing of God's people from Egypt. Rarely great similarities. Just as God is the one who worked the rescue of his people out of Egypt by doing great and mighty acts against the Egyptians and their gods, God is the one who works the rescue of the ark out of the area of the Philistines by doing great and mighty acts against the Philistines and against their gods. Just as there was like plagues in um, Egypt, it seems like there's all these kinds of or types of plagues that will hit the Philistines. Something else to tell you. Um, the literal phrase, send away the ark, it's the same Hebrew words used by Moses when he said, let my people go. Intentional parallelism here in the very language of the Hebrews. Secondly, the Israelites did not leave Egypt empty, but if you remember, they were given gold. The ark will not leave the area of the Philistines empty, but it will also leave with gold. A lot of parallels. Remember this from Exodus when the people left Egypt? And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. Now in a moment, we're going to find that the, when the ark returns, it has a bunch of gold trinkets with it. <laughs> and it's not what I would call jewelry. Some of you who know the text know where I'm going with that. Pick it up in verses four and five. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, well, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So the lords are getting these plagues. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods, plural, and your land. Now, I don't know if you saw it, but there is a fair amount of humor that just took place in this verse. I think the author of the book of 1 Samuel is having a hard time keeping his, keeping his face straight as he's writing this down. Okay, guys, we're going to have to make images of, your, of five golden tumors, the kind that are on your lords. Please model your tumor for me so we can make a gold carving of it to send back with the ark. Now, if you go with the Masoretic text and you think it's hemorrhoids, it gets really weird. <laughs> but it goes on from there. Not only do you have to make models of the tumors, but it says this, you should also, um, by the way, make some models of the mice. Well, where did the mice come from? Apparently, that's like another plague that has taken place. There's mice that are eating all the crops. So, hey, let's send some mice along too. Then he says, they say, do this, and make sure you give glory to the God of Israel. Wait a minute. In the last chapter, you thought you defeated the God of Israel. 
Now at this point, you're trying to give glory to the God of Israel, so he takes his hand off you and stops oppressing you. Boy, are things switching around. That he may lighten your load... He may lighten his hand against you and your gods, plural. Just so you know, Dagon, who got pushed over, beat up, and chopped up, that was only the first of the Philistine deity that was literally beat up in his own temple. Apparently, there was other Philistine deity that also got knocked over, chopped up, and beat up. So God's been pretty hard on these guys but rightfully so. In verse six, they say this, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? The priests and the diviners are seeing at this point that what is happening to the Philistines and their land is a parallel to what happened to Egypt. And they say, by the way, these plagues and all these physical sicknesses, the mice that are overrunning the land, this happened before. Lords, Philistine lords, do not be like Pharaoh and harden your heart. Please get this thing out of here. You can see where they're going at with this. By the way, a little point of application. When God is trying to get our attention, don't be hard-hearted and ignore him. Isn't that true? Sometimes God tries to get our attention and we can be hard-hearted and ignore him. Let's continue in the text. They devise a plan for how to return the ark. Now then, take and prepare a new cart with two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side. The figures of gold, which you are returning to him, is a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It just happened to us by coincidence. Boy, do they stack the odds against this ark going home. They really want to try to keep it. First of all, they say, we're going to put it on a cart, and we're going to put, on the cart is to be led by two cows who have never been yoked together. How well do you think that's going to work? They're going to spend all their time fighting with one another. And by the way, they're cows that have just recently calved. Now, you guys are the farmers. Now, I don't know this, but I read about this. But do cows want to be separated from their baby calves? Joe? No, not at all. So if you separate these cows from their baby calves, what are they going to do? Turn around and going to go right back home. They want to keep the ark. They're not trying to get rid of the ark. Let's see what happens. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the ark, to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. Remember that, it's their tumors. Low, lowing, <laughs> and the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. 
as the Lord of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh is seven miles away from Ekron. So they put the, the Ark of the Covenant on the cart. They put the golden tumors in a box and the, the little golden mice in the cart, put the cows, and to their amazement, these cows don't fight one another. They instantly, like a compass, find the direction of Beth Shemesh, which is the nearest part of Israel, and they go in that direction, neither going to the left nor to the right, like they are on a highway, straight as an arrow. Now, when was the last time you ever saw a cow walk in a straight line? Much less two cows walk in a straight line, away from their own calves. I'm like, it doesn't happen. This is crazy, seven miles straight. And I think it's interesting. The lords of the Philistines are like walking after them, keep watching this. They can't believe it. This thing is going to make it all the way home. It certainly does. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. Well, that's probably an understatement. You're reaping the reap harvest and you start hearing the lowing of the cows in the distance and you look and start seeing the cows coming towards you and the Ark of the Covenant that was taken captive by the Philistines seven months ago on the back of it. Wow, this is great news. Praise God, the Ark has come home. They're rejoicing. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. Thanks be to God. The ark is home. It's time to celebrate. Sounds pretty normal. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice. And notice this according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. The priests and diviners recommended five golden mice. Did they limit it to five golden mice? according to all of their villages, walled and unwalled. Like, we're not going to make a mistake. Anything we can to get rid of these um, tumors, anything we can to get rid of these sicknesses, anything we can to get God's hand off of it, we're going to give extra mice. Now, it would be nice if the story stopped there. But it doesn't. Here's an interesting twist. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because of the Lord, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow, or as I put there afterwards, a slaughter. 
Beth Shemesh was a Levitical city. It had Levites in it. They knew how to properly treat the ark. But it says some of them looked upon the ark and God struck them. Do you think this was looking on the outside of the ark? No, everybody's been looking on the outside of the ark. I think, and many scholars think, that they looked on the inside of the ark. It's home. Let's pop the lid and check the inside of it. Bad idea. What do you think the Old Testament says about looking on the inside of the ark? It will not end well for you. And they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. So what we have is that Hophni and Phinehas did not treat God with respect. They died. The Philistines did not treat the ark with respect. It should have never been taken. They died. Now we have Levites themselves who popped the lid on the ark, did not treat it with respect, and they died. Point of application here for us. The people of God must keep a healthy fear of God. The people of God must keep a healthy fear of God. Even though they were Levites, they didn't do that. Here was their reaction afterwards. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. We're going to pass this box off that kills everybody to you guys. Talk about loving your neighbors. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. But there was no problem when it was there because they treated it properly and respectfully like they should. In fact, the ark stayed there until King David eventually brought it to Jerusalem. This long two chapters, I have two applications for you. The first application comes out of the chapter five. It's this, God loves to rescue us when things look hopeless. Isn't that what God did when his people were in Egypt? Waited until things were hopeless, and then he moved his mighty hand and came to the rescue. That's what he did with his ark when it was in the country of the Philistines. When things were hopeless, it was in the temple of Ashdod. He moved his mighty hand until literally the, Phil- the Philistines sent it home. That's what he did with Jesus. He was dead. He was buried. He was in the tomb, and he came back to life when things were at the most hopeless point. Folks, the same is true for you and me. Whether it's in this life or it's at the end of this life, when we are in utter defeat, when we cannot draw a breath, when our heart cannot beat another beat, and we close our eyes in defeat the very last time, it's in the moments of our greatest defeat that Jesus hands us our greatest victory. And we are brought home to be with our Savior. The second application I have comes out of chapter six, and it's this. 
The answer for how anyone can stand before God's wrath is found in the construction of the ark. This is the key question that the men of Beth Shemesh said. The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? He kills the Philistines like crazy. He's killing us. Who can ever stand before him? Here's what we need to see. Put in the picture of the ark if you could up there. Remember the ark, four feet long, two feet wide, two feet high. On top of the ark were two cherubim, and they were to be looking down on the ark. And God was said to dwell between them. Now remember, in the ark was the Ten Commandments, God's law. God and the cherubim were looking down on his law. They were looking all the time on his law, which we have broken, which makes us fully deserving of God's wrath. But here is the good news. God's priests were to sacrifice animals, and they were to go and put on top of the ark, that very top cover was known as the mercy seat. And that is where they put the blood of bulls and animals. So the cherubim looked down not to see the Ten Commandments, which we have broken, but they looked down to see the blood which covered our sin. Now, the good news is this. When you come to the New Testament, here's what we find. Paul says this. God has put forward, speaking about Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This word propitiation is the Greek word hysterion. hysterion. It is the Greek word for the mercy seat on the ark. When Jesus died... His blood was applied to the mercy seat of the ark in heaven. His blood is what covers our sin. And how do we receive it? Paul says it right here, simply by faith. That if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see the Ten Commandments and all the ways that you have broken them and failed them and you're deserving of his wrath. What he sees is the blood of his son having covered all your sin. Atoned for, paid for. We can stand because of Jesus before a holy and righteous God. We don't have to die like the Philistines. We don't have to die like the men of Beth Shemesh. But forever, we will be with our, our Lord and Savior, home in heaven because of what Jesus has done. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we learned in the fifth chapter about your incredible, awesome power and holiness. But thank you for what we also learned here in the sixth chapter. The only way that we can stand before you is because of your son. Thank you for what you have done for us, Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.